0: Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves, my name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're talking about the pulp writer Robert E. Howard, who's best known for creating the fantasy hero Conan the Barbarian. We're joined by Arlene Stevenson, who is president of Project Pride a non-profit organization that owns and operates the Robert E. Howard Museum in Cross Plains, Texas. Now, Cross Plains is a small place in the middle of a big state. Howard lived in the town from the age of 13 until his tragic death at 30 in 1936 when he committed suicide. The museum is the Howard family home. The house has been restored and furnished to reflect how it would have looked in the 1920s and the 1930s when Cross Plains enjoyed a boom period as a Texas oil town. Fans of swords and sorcery fiction travel from around the world to visit the Robert E. Howard Museum. And Arlene is going to tell us a little bit more about the author's legacy and the museum itself. Welcome, Arlene. Good morning, I was Texas. Good morning. I hope you're well down there in Texas.
1: Doing well. Excellent.
0: All right, first question. Could you please describe the Robert E. Howard Museum to us?
1: Well, it's a typical little house built back in the early 1900s. It was built from a set of plans you could buy through a magazine. Small little one-bedroom, nice little living room, kitchen, Dining room, which is somewhat rare in that day and age, and a long sleeping porch, which accommodated uh, various and sundry visitors. Uh, there was one bedroom to the house. They did later add a little room for Robert. Uh, so then that house was just like that until Hard sold it, and then it was added on to and remodeled and whatnot until we got it in 89, and we were able to restore it back to what it was when the Howard's lived there as much as we physically could. The uh, room that had been added first as a porch and then as a bedroom was made into a, a shop because it did not have to reflect the integrity of the house. But everything else in there has been restored as closely as we could when the Howard's did live there. Um, so it's it's quite very unique now first time really because it had uh, French doors from the living room to the dining room and somehow or another they survived. All those various owners and numerous kids roaring through the house, those glass French doors, the original ha- door hardware still there. Um, kind of amazing in itself that it's still standing.
0: And Howard actually wrote in, in his bedroom. He wrote the stories in his bedroom, correct?
1: Yes. He wrote all that massive amount of stories in those short years in this little old cramped room that's about six feet wide and probably 10, 12 feet long, cramped little thing. He was kind of a big old fellow, and he he wrote all of that cramped up in that little room, hunched over a desk with an old Underwood typewriter.
0: Right. Now, Howard... um Primarily wrote for the pulp magazines of that era, such as uh, Weird Tales and and the Argosy. W- what was it like at that time to be writing for those magazines? What was the process for Howard?
1: Well, at that point, they would have ju- he would have just typed them, hard copy, and mailed them off snail mail to the publisher. Um. Wouldn't have been a whole lot of correspondence by telephone, I don't think. It had to have been just back and forth, snail mail. He would send off a story. It would either be accepted or rejected for a rewrite. Uh, He'd work it over and send it back. And because he was so creative and had such a vivid imagination, while one story was in the works and maybe was being rejected and reworked, he would start writing another story in another genre. So he may have three or four stories going on in his mind at the same time and in the hopper while one was waiting to be published. And all of this was without very many resources here. Cross Plains was small, had a small high school, was in a limited library, and he had already read everything he wanted up there. There was no public library. Uh, So his outside resources were just virtually nil. He had accumulated quite a a personal library uh, to feed his vast array of interests. Uh, but other than that, it was just he just wrote from his mind.
0: Was uh, the process was really quite slow, burning and, and rather hard. Oh yeah. There was no guarantee guaranteed that he was going to get paid, and if he did get paid, he'd have to wait for publication, which could be a year later.
1: It could be quite some time, and he got a resounding one penny per word. Wow. You <laughs> <laughs> get very verbose at a penny a word.
0: Yes. Very descriptive. <laughs> Very descriptive, yes. Um, so he he worked hard, but really, is it fair to say that he's more famous now than he was in the 20s and the early 1930s?
1: Oh, I do th- think so, yes, because, you know, the pulp magazines had a limited uh, audience, really and truly. He never was published as a hardback writer, during his lifetime there was one little story book that came out, published in England just a couple years after he died that had been in the hopper and that came about because a publisher in England wanted to publish a book his agent said he doesn't write books, he writes short stories well they finally came to an agreement that Howard would take several of his short stories featuring this Kind of bumbling mountain man, take Bill type guy named Breckenridge Elkins. And he would take a lot of those stories and just string them together and make a book out of them. Well, that book came out known as A Gent from Bear Creek. It came out, I think, in 1938, a couple of years after his death. Came out in England, just as England was starting paper drives for munitions to, you know, fund World War II. Well, here's this obscure little book by some unknown in America. Well, it didn't last very long. To this day, they have found 18 first editions of that one book. See, so, yeah, it's extremely rare. Yeah. And Project Pride owns one one of those 18 copies.
0: So, so if, um, if Robert was living in Cross Plains, his tiny place, how did he accumulate his knowledge about what was going on in the world around him? For instance, he wrote about the, the Picts in Scotland and various other parts of the world. How did he... Did he have a book collection?
1: He did. Um, like I say, we, we ended up with his personal collection of books. He had over 300 Personal books and these were history books, like you talked there. Um, stories of oil fields, John Paul Jones, Western. He even had freckles. A story about a little boy. It was his oldest book he had. But he had collected a lot of these. He would go around with his dad when he would go to a medical convention. Robert would tag along and go to bookstores. He'd go to the libraries. And it was in New Orleans, I I think it was, where he discovered the pics. Right. Um, I think it was on one of those medical trips with his dad. So, yes, he would go just absorb books and acquire as many books as he could, you know, limited income and everything. Yeah.
0: And his father was a doctor?
1: His father was a country doctor, typical country doctor, made house calls in a horse and buggy, then later in a Model T. Mm -hmm. But his father was a very avid reader also. And his father read everything, a lot of theology and philosophy, history. You know, and his mother was really into poetry, you know, this kid grew up in a world of words. And listening to his dad sit out on the front porch and tell tall tales with the neighbors, well, Robert soon got to where he could hold his own, telling Wendy's, as he called him.
0: Windy's, right.
1: Windy's, uh, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: Um, So the w- one thing that I did not know about Howard was that he committed suicide at a, a pretty young age. Can, can at you, age
1: 30. Yeah. Can, mm-hmm. you,
0: can you explain the circumstances that l- led up to his
1: death? Well, of course, nobody can ever without doubt this is why somebody takes your own life Um, he had long expressed rather well known with his correspondence with friends that had since been discovered that he was sort of fascinated with the hereafter you know what was was death going to be like Uh, so he had that kind of fascination the 1930s was very hard time economically around the country. Uh, A lot of people were really committing suicide, really and truly around. Uh, He was not getting paid. His books or his stories were being accepted, uh, but the money was not coming in, so that was stressful in itself. His mother was sick with tuberculosis, had been most of her life, was getting uh, worse and worse. So that's a major stress factor. And back then, they did not have home health care like we do now. Cross Plains didn't have a hospital. She wasn't. It wasn't the type of thing that she was in. A, would have been in a hospital for. It was just home care. But they didn't have home health care like they do now. Uh, nurses kind of came through. Neighbor ladies came through, taking care of her. A lot of that fell to Robert also, because his dad was out on calls. He was just there, he just did what he had to do. So he had a lot of that stress also. So there was just a lot caving in on the young man. He wasn't able to write like he should because of all these factors. Um, His mother had dropped into a coma. They said that she would never recover. Well, he had these thoughts of, what's it gonna be like for her in the hereafter all by herself with nobody there to take care of her? So they kind of thought, well, maybe that factored into some of it. Um, Like I say, there was a lot of things feeding into it, but who knows what finally caused him to pull that trigger.
0: It it seems a desperately sad end. We'd probably say that he would, might have been suffering from depression today.
1: I'm sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now,
1: If you take those factors in any of our lives, then it would be quite a burden.
0: Yes. Yeah, I'd imagine. Yeah. So it seems that Cross Plains really gets behind their most famous son, And as well as the museum, it it, it looks like in a normal year that you you would have an event in the summer to celebrate his legacy. Is that correct?
1: Yes, we have, um, it's a Robert E. Howard Days. It's a two-day event in June closest, the the weekend closest to his death. So it's always about the second Saturday of June, and the preceding Friday. And it's a full two days of, tours both the museum and around town uh, places of interest pertaining to his life uh, panel discussions they have a symposium of new papers being presented they have an awards ceremony recognizing uh, contributions of past year through a variety of media they have a silent auction to ben- benefit the museum, and it's all hard related items. Um, probably the neatest part of that whole weekend, and this will have probably 125 people from, you know, out beyond right here. A lot of these are, like say, 25 states or so and three or four or five different countries. But the last night of that, they will gather on the front porch of that house at sunset and they will recite his best-known poem samaria in every language it's represented there that weekend so anybody who speaks another language comes up and they take turns reading that poem one year we had nine different languages represented at this robert hard days <laughs> in little little cross plains america Nine different languages.
0: So so who comes to visit the museum?
1: Uh, they're more typically just people from all these 125 to 150 throughout the year, more predominantly from the states. And they're people who have a special interest in Robert Hard. Our museum is not one that attracts the general public, It's not like a natural history museum. It's much more focused on one person. So you about have to be really interested in Robert Howard to even know about the museum or even be interested. But the people that we get are the ones who just have read Robert Howard all their life. And they read, you know, a lot of them come in reading Conan as young teenagers. To the Conan comic books and then they start to discover some of his other writings and they just gradually grow into being a real fan of everything that Howard wrote they are the ones that want to come see the museum so it's not something that people will just see them oh there's a museum down the road let's stop well number one we're open by appointment only so they do have to call ahead to make an appointment but uh so it doesn't, it's not a great big draw because it's a very limited interest area. Right.
0: Now, as you mentioned, um, Howard is, is best remembered for Conan, but he wrote across many genres, westerns, adventure, poetry even. Um, but why do you think his Conan stories are, are so popular with people?
1: Um, that's one of the first questions we typically ask our visitors is, What turns you on to Hard? You know, what, what brings you here today? How did you get re- interested in reading Robert Hard? And the vast majority of them will say, I started reading the Conan comic books as a teenager and grew from there. Okay, so what kept you growing into this? What, what was it about Conan that kept you going? And, well, it kind of boils down to kind of like Conan was a, a kind of a man's man. You know, he was independent. He was strong physically and mentally. He was cunning. You know, he lived on the side of right and justice. And it was just something that I think people can identify with in a positive way. We've had people coming through, even a young lady one time, (laughs) who <laughs> said, uh, you know, I was I was always being bullied. I just couldn't seem to stand up for myself. And finally I read read a Conan comic book, and I thought, that's pretty cool. I read some more, Thought, hmm. You know, he didn't take no lip from nobody. <laughs> nobody bullied Conan. Nobody has to bully me. I'm going to stand up for myself. And she said, I was not bullied from that day forth. I thought well, okay. There's a good reason for reading Conan.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Um so Howard Howard was a big guy and, and he liked to box as well, was that correct?
1: Yes. Yeah, he was he was quite big. Yeah. He was a well built guy. They he did like to box. He um held his own boxing. He liked to listen to boxing over the radio. And there was one radio here in town. at the time. And Robert was instrumental in getting that radio here because he and another group of young men had gone downtown to the tallest building in town, set up an antenna, ran the wires all the way down the block across the tops of two or three other buildings down to a drugstore at the other end of the block, and they set up a receiving station in there. So if you want to listen to the radio, you went to the drugstore when it was open. He sat around, probably around the fire in the back of the drugstore listening to the radio. Well, that's where he would listen to the news and boxing. So he got to be quite an avid boxer. They would uh, go down to the ice house here where they chemically made the ice that they took out and delivered. But back where they chemically made him was this nice, cool environment where the guys could go back there and drink a cold beer and box. Back in that area and that's where he kind of came into his own as a boxer and that's what what drove his boxing stories
0: Right uh, Cross Plains is a really small place, correct?
1: Yes, uh, we're less than a thousand now So Howard
0: must have been quite the like maybe even considered an audible figure back in the 1920s when he was trying to make his name
1: I think that's an apt description I think he was a nerd before nerds had been invented he knew early on he wanted to be a writer that's all he wanted to be he was not really into athletics he was sort of into his own imagination uh, he wasn't as we said into sweat he wanted to he just wanted to write and create he knew from early on that's what he wanted to do well that that was odd back then because this was a rough-and-tumble town you know the oilfield people. The um, high school-age boys were into, you know, football. They were the rough-and-tumble bunch. Well, Howard did not fit into that at all. So, yeah, he was somewhat the oddball. He was a very creative type who he, he had to verbalize what he was creating in his mind. was not uncommon for him to go down the street boxing he was acting out the boxing movements (laughs) you know the swings and the uppercuts and the dances and sidesteps as he was going down the street well obviously they thought he was crazy right but that's what then he put into his stories that made them so authentic and real
0: Now, aside from his writing, he was also a great letter writer, and and he corresponded with all sorts of people, including H.P. Lovecraft.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. And you know what surprises me there? Yes, they they wrote extensive letters back and forth. He and Lovecraft would write letters six, seven, eight, ten pages long. But what surprised me is the fact that those letters have survived all these years. You know, they kept a letter. I put it off in a trunk, and answered it, and then never did throw it away. And those letters just accumulated. Well, when the Robert Howard Foundation was formed, uh, oh, mid nineties, I guess maybe. Um, their goal was to publish everything that Howard had written. Well. All this correspondence started surfacing through uh, a lot of efforts of Glenn Lord. They started finding all this correspondence of letters. Letters of Roberts back and forth to Lovecraft, and even found some of Dr. Howard's letters. And those found their ways into books of just correspondence. And it just, it's amazing that those letters themselves survived.
0: So what objects that belong to Howard do you actually have in the museum? Do you have any of the correspondence?
1: No, the uh, our library has several of the original typescripts of his some of the first editions at the library. What we have on display at the museum is a there's a statue a bust of Cleopatra that he got on that one of his ...trips to New Orleans with his dad when he was 13. That was a souvenir that kid came back with, was a bus to Cleopatra. You know, most 13-year-olds get a T-shirt that says, been there, done that, but not Howard. (laughs) There's um, a little wooden camel inkwell that a friend of his brought from the Holy Land. It's on Robert's desk. There's a a little brown, uh, like, flower vase on Mrs. Howard's room, and a picture on the wall in Mrs. Howard's room that was there originally. In the living room are four nondescript prints, pictures that were hanging there when the Howard's lived there. Somehow those things have all survived and came back to us. So those items are the originals. Um, we do have a postcard from H.P. Lovecraft that he wrote to Howard uh, when he was in Canada, uh, Ottawa, I think it was, right. a postcard that Lovecraft sent to Howard that was given to us a number of years ago, and we have on display there. Mm-hmm. We do have um, a lot of, about 80-some of Howard's own books. Not that he wrote, but he his own story books and uh, books that he referenced. Like I said, he he had a lot of history books. Um, Tarzan, John Paul Jones, just books that he personally had collected. We had those in our in the museum there. They've got his DNA all over them. Well, some of Dr. hireds own books with his DNA on them. But the rest of the museum is just period pieces that have been donated, you know, local people.
0: So I, I guess people just come to the museum to to see where Howard
1: lived and worked. That's, that's it primarily, yes. Mm-hmm. We do uh, promote it to our schools, uh, bring the school kids out as a, a resource, what life was like. In the 1920s and 30s you know here's what your great-grandparents house may have looked like so they come out and view it from that standpoint Uh, but other than that it's just a restored home that appeals to hard readers
0: it sounds like an ideal place for sounds like an ideal place for someone who loves howard and loves reading
1: yeah we are on the National Register of Historic Homes. we got on that shortly after we had it all renovated uh just recently we've been we're going to be receiving a historic marker from the state of Texas Now uh, we'll be receiving that marker so those we do have those two designations right national designations for the the museum for what it is Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, Arlene, uh, one last question. So this is for you personally. Um, We ask this to all our guests, but what book book or books are you currently reading?
1: (laughs) Well, every so often I like to dig out Carlton Stowers, a Texas writer. Um, What I especially like are his true crime stories. He's had a few that have been made into movies. He has written a whole lot of um, sports stories and a whole lot of Dallas Cowboy football stories. But um, his true crime stories are just really well written. They just read like um, a mystery novel. And if you can put it out of your mind that they really truly happened to somebody, you know, they're a good read. So I go back and read Carlton's every now and then.
0: And he's a he's a Texas guy.
1: Texas writer, Carlton Stowers. Mm-hmm. All right. He said some of these true crime books have been made into movies. And he finally got tired of writing about this true crime genre. He just could not take any more of what people do to each other. So he just got off into writing fluff, as he calls it. Um... Christmas memories on the Texas Plains, and you know, he wrote one about a little football team that had not won a game in, I don't know, seemed like forever 15, 20 years. But that town supported that little old team. Every game, the whole town went out anyway to support that little old team, and it was just for or dreams die hard type thing. And it was a, a neat little book. He just writes human nature. And just really neat stuff.
0: Excellent. Sounds good. All right, um, Arlene, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, I want to say uh, thank you to Arlene Stevenson for joining us. Arlene is president of uh, Project Pride. Uh, a non-profit organization that owns and operates the Robert E. Howard Museum in Cross Plains, Texas. And you can learn more about the author, Robert E. Howard, and the museum by going to rehfoundation.org, rehfoundation.org. Thank you, Arlene.
1: Thank you. It's been nice visiting with you.
0: It's been lovely talking to you. Hope you enjoyed the show and we'll see you all again soon.